Hey, Christ in the Chaos listeners, the topic of today's episode is race. Just to be clear, we believe that systemic racism is a kingdom issue. We believe that allowing injustice to go unchecked and unchallenged is taking a stance in opposition to our Lord. The reality is that people of color, and especially Black and Indigenous Americans, are disadvantaged in basically every measurable way. They lack educational opportunities, career advancement opportunities, housing access. Their infants and mothers are dying at childbirth. Their sons and daughters are being incarcerated at unconscionable rates. And most importantly, they are being killed by acts of hate, violence, and sometimes just plain old disregard for the value of their human lives. There are only two explanations for these statistics. Either you believe that people of color are actually inferior. And if you believe that, uh, Lord help you, because this podcast and no other podcast is going to fix that kind of brokenness. Or you believe that these statistics um, of these incontrovertible disadvantages are the result of a system which keeps white people and especially white Americans elevated and disenfranchises, oppresses and kills people of color in America. Make no mistake, allowing that system to stand without taking an active role in dismantling it is racism. It is sinful and it is antithetical to the call that Jesus Christ has put on your life. So that's why we're talking about the issue today. Welcome to Christ in the Chaos, where a pastor's kid and a kid's pastor share their messy attempt at raising a Christ-centered family. We may not know what we're doing, but we are right in the thick of it. And this is how we're finding Christ in the Chaos. Welcome to Christ in the Chaos. My name is Kathleen. And I'm Joel. And today we are going to be doing the episode that I've been avoiding doing for... Oh, I don't know, like a year now. Um, and we are going to be talking about race. Um, we are going to be inviting our brother-in-law. Um, I'm going to say Jamerson Watson. Um, we met him and call him Christopher, um, but he has since changed his name. So the appropriate thing to do would be to call him by his actual name. Yeah, don't dead name him. Um, um. <laughs> on this episode of all episodes. So... Christopher is my brother-in-law, my sister's. He's my brother-in-law, too. I was just trying to help people understand the relationship because there's no <laughs> different word. Just he is my sister's husband. Uh, he is a, an activist, a, a wonderful person all around. He grew up, I believe, in Texas, probably. Can we, can we clarify that he's also a black man? <laughs> yes. I was going to let like him introduce himself. I uh, was going to say, I'm Christopher and I'm a black man. I mean, that, we can give the people that much of an intro. Uh, I assume that's how he introduces himself. <laughs> and Let's, that's why we're doing this and, episode. Uh, so, Christopher, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, tell everybody kind of who you are, what you do, and whatever you feel that people should know. Sure, that works. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Christopher Watson. Uh, I also go by Jamerson. Um, I also go by Hey, uh, but that is not my bird name, obviously. Uh, I am originally from Austin, Texas, and I currently live in Washington, D.C. My current work is focused on um, working with organizations that help homeless youth, uh, specifically homeless youth of color, uh, as well as LGBTQ identifying young people who are experiencing homelessness. Awesome. And you have a different religious background than I do. I come from a more 
sit on your hands, Lutheran background, and what's your background? So uh, growing up, uh, I was uh, a Baptist, um, which is a very particular um, American denomination, um, which is rooted, obviously, in Protestantism, um, but uh, came about um, with the split in, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a split in the church where specifically um, around uh, black churches splitting from churches. The predominant denomination in the U.S. Um, split uh, their Baptists into National Baptist, Southern Baptist, and other uh, categories. However, currently I do not identify as Baptist. Uh, that is what I was uh, kind of reared in. Uh, we never actually really went to church when I was a, a kid. My grandma, uh, who is a wonderful woman who uh, passed about 10 years ago, would sometimes take us kids to church. And obviously, uh, growing up that way, something just stuck at some point. Um, so then when I uh, moved to Chicago, um, I found a really amazing church and my relationship with Christ just um, kind of took off from there. And so now I don't really identify with a particular denomination. However, the churches that I feel most comfortable in are traditionally charismatic churches. Um, if you however, I will say charismatic means that your hands go above the belt buckle. <laughs> <laughs> That is, in fact, oh. correct. I've been to enough Lutheran churches to know that um, <laughs> you all can. Um, you are plenty capable of putting your hands above your waist. It just feels it's just not as comfortable. Yes. Um, I was going to ask, when did you move? Like, how old were you when you moved to Chicago? Because that's kind of I, I don't think I even know this part of the story. So you didn't grow up in the church, but you were a certain age when it took off. So when was that? Yeah, that's actually a really good yeah. question. So um, I was probably um, 25. So I was definitely well into adulthood, but not quite at, at that stage of adulthood where um, I was making, um, uh, trying to say this adult in a way that's decisions. not, yeah, <laughs> not, I didn't want to be adultist, um, but definitely young folks make really amazing decisions all the time. And unfortunately, when I was younger, I was not one of those young people. And so, <laughs> so, but at, at that point, when I moved to Chicago, I was probably on that border of where I was making decisions that would uh, really change my life dramatically. And obviously then uh, the that defining relationship that I um, kind of reestablished that uh, connection with Christ was um, obviously a shift in my uh, maturity into adulthood. Awesome. Well, every week, Christopher, and I know you know this because you always listen to the podcast, every week <laughs> we check in with each other um, and we encourage our listeners to check in with their family and their loved ones because now, more than ever, we really need to check in with each other. So, Kathleen, how you doing? We'll start with you because that's just, I accidentally start. That's how I always check in. Um, I'm, I am tired. I am, ex like, I think I'm exhausted all, all the time now. Um, we were just talking about that it's, it's like a, like a clinical depression that isn't depression. Like I, it's a situational thing, but where I've just stopped trying and I'm exhausted. And then on top of that, I feel like I'm not entitled to that because we're keeping our income and we have a nice home and everybody's healthy and safe. Um, and like, there's no reason for me to be like this, but I am, I'm done. I'm done with the pandemic i'm done with just the world being turned upside down and i'm just exhausted by it 
That's fair. I think a lot of people are there. <laughs> that's that's where I am. Hey, since I actually remembered we have a guest, Christopher, uh, how are you doing? Um, I would actually like to start out by saying that um, I think it's really amazing that you all check in with each other uh, at the beginning of an episode. That's actually something that I think people forget to do. And so I think that that's a practice that you all do on a regular basis that I really think that we all need to learn to do with one another now. And I'm not just talking about like our our black fan, friends and family, um, other folks of color uh, who we are connected to, but I think everyone, like, we have been through, and I don't use this word flippantly, right? Like, um, I know that um, as Christians, we tend to have various definitions of hate, but if one were to just use it, um, uh, some people may consider kind of a pejorative uh, expression, but I think that to a certain extent, a lot of us have gone through our own hell over the past three or four mm-hmm. months and so checking in with people is like super important so kudos to y'all for doing that yeah we always say or i always say kathleen or Spanks, funny we're saying like this is your reminder to check in with anyone who you feel you're responsible for their mental health or they might feel responsible for yours you should check in with that group of people and that being said christopher we appreciate your kudos but we also want to hear how you're doing no, no, definitely. Um, so <laughs> I am actually uh, also feeling exhausted. Um, I think that we collectively have been through a lot. And I think we as individuals um, are experiencing the remnants of what we've gone through collectively. Um, and so especially for those folks who are feeling disconnected, right? So you have some folks who are still sheltered in place in a lot of places. Um, you have some folks who are, you know, I work with a lot of young people who are extreme, who are, are Excuse me. I work with a lot of young people who are estranged from their family. Um, and so um, I think a lot of us are experiencing that individual exhaustion. And fortunately, uh, very much similar to what you just described, Kathleen, I am very fortunate in a lot of places in my life where I do have food on the table. Um, I do have a roof over my head. And yet that doesn't um, necessarily uh, shield us, uh, no pun intended, from just feeling that sheer exhaustion from the weight of the world that we've been experiencing over the past three months. So I equally, I can empathize. I definitely feel that exhaustion as well. And it should be noted that you're both quarantined in houses with members of my family, which can't be (laughs) Demands are exhausting. Um, All right, I will will take the fifth on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Uh, She doesn't listen to this. I'm doing fine. Uh, As we've kind of taken it. says that every time, so. At work, we've taken to saying, well... In regular terms, I'm terrible, but in adjusted terms, I'm doing really well. I <laughs> adjusted for quarantine. I'm doing pretty good. Like Kathleen said, we we have what we need. We our family is safe and relatively healthy. Levi had an ear infection and pneumonia turned into pneumonia. Yeah, uh, which but that's just such a Levi thing to do, and so it's pretty normal. It was one of those things where you go to the doctor and you say, oh, we have an ear infection. And he's like, okay, I'll just, I don't even have to look at it because you can diagnose them at this point. Yeah. So it was stressful, but not atypical of our life. Just, yeah, everything just kind of is that weight that just drags you down and down and down. You you forget you're wearing it until you try and lift your head and there's a weight around your neck. It's like, we've talked about it. It's like the... The Horcrux from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, like they, whenever they're wearing it, they're just exhausted. It just feels like you're wearing a Horcrux all the time. Personally, I compared it to the One Ring, but I guess you could do Harry Potter if you wanted to be oh. cool. Uh, yeah. But we are getting our house painted. We got a table on Craigslist, refinished it, painted it, and kind of redid our 
our dining room and that was fun and inexpensive and so and it took a lot of time which is great <laughs> the perfect hobby Okay, so we're going to switch over to our topic today, um, which we're talking about race very generally. And we were trying to, I've actually been noodling on how to format or do this episode for about a year. Um, when I, after listening to uh, Smartest Person in the Room, did their bias series and kind of got me going down this route of growth. And then I read White Fragility. And then I really started going down this growth. And I, I, it made me anxious because I didn't want to put anything out there that was going. I mean, let's do it just like any other white person. I didn't want to alienate people by um, talking about something important. Um, so, so we're past that point yeah. now in life. But we did bring Christopher on because we're super not qualified to talk about this. Because we're like, I wear khaki cargo shorts and you're wearing well, we just have yoga pants we're, white. We're both white. And we live in a white neighborhood, and we go to a primarily white church, and our kid goes to a primarily white school, 67%, I asked. And um, so it's, it's yeah we're not qualified to talk about it by ourselves. Um, so format-wise, what we decided to do is to do um, a 16 bridge-building tips for white people. This comes from uh, the Be the Bridge uh it's a program podcast. It's basically a brand now uh, started by Latasha Morrison. And um, these uh, 16 bridge building tips are like one of her, the things she puts out for everybody to have access to for free. She has a paid curriculum. Um, I'm actually looking into possibly doing it at our church with a big group of people. Um, but this is kind of a starting point. So we thought since we are at the starting line, this would be a good place to start. We'll put a link in the doobly-doo. Christopher, do you have anything you want to add before we get started? A uh, good question, and the answer is not that I can think Okay. Of. <laughs> We're going to just try to do that. And actually, this is probably an important precursor. Um, Joel and I, being people that talk over each other constantly um, and now bringing a third person into the conversation, um, we are going to do an awkwardly good job of trying to give you opportunities to talk because um, of how important it is on this issue that you have an actual opportunity to talk and how bad we are personally at letting that happen in general for any person. Um, so if you, we awkwardly pause and you're like, okay, yeah, but you don't have to talk every time. We just want to make sure you have the opportunity. All right. Number one, don't expect POC, people of color, to be your only source of education about race. We nailed this one already. <laughs> uh, black, indigenous, and people of color get exhausted explaining the same ideas over and over again. Every time a white person, quote, joins the conversation, read a book instead. Watch a documentary. Google terms. That's a terrible idea. Do not Google this. If no, you could Google some stuff. Go. Stay off Reddit. If you must hit up a friend of color for insight, at least buy them dinner and really listen to what they have to say. Oh, we didn't buy him dinner. No. He, Tara will buy him dinner. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> she, she probably won't, just so we're clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, no, I know she won't, but I wanted Kathleen to feel better. Um, I. It's so funny because I just had this conversation with somebody for the first time. You know, somebody who's really walking into this conversation really newly after the death of George Floyd. Um, and... 
they were like, oh, great, I can ask so-and-so about this. And for me, this piece of advice is something that I've known in the year-ish since I've been growing in this way. And I was like, let me tell you, that's not how this works. I'm like, and so this is definitely something that is just like, this should be the first thing because um, otherwise people are just going to be coming to their Christophers to explain every little thing. I... Well, let me ask this. Christopher, has this happened to you in the last few weeks? Besides us. You know, here's the thing. Yes and no. I've been surprised by the number of folks who um, get this, right? And so I think that's something that we've done, and I'm, I'm talking a proverbial we, right? Like, not black folks necessarily, but something that I think we've done culturally is to understand that there was a lot of um, social pressure uh, on uh, black folks um, and other folks of color to essentially like explain uh, racism to uh, white folks. And so I think that that's something that happened a lot with Mike Brown. It happened a lot with Sandra Bland. Um, it happened a lot with Eric Garner. And I think now we're finally getting to that, uh, that point as a culture where we're like, oh, this is something where I'm expected to actually like do the work as opposed to putting the emotional labor on someone else to do the work on my behalf. So, um, so to answer your question specifically, yes, but not as much as it's happened before in the past. Would you <laughs> recommend, or do you, I mean, you personally, um, I, I would feel that, you know, I kind of, you want to do your own research, but you kind of also want to run it by someone, not for a, because I would agree that I shouldn't use you as an encyclopedia just because, right, you're black. I shouldn't be like, hey, so tell me about, you know, Fred Hampton or whatever. But once I do that research, I do feel like I, having no cultural concept of, like, what your life has been, kind of want to run it by you and be like, here's what I think is that can you bounce that off me and make sure I'm not going down the wrong path, especially since... You know, you go on the internet and there's some things on there. And also making sure limiting it to not just, you know, people you know, but people you know well enough that you could have this type of conversation with. What I'm hearing you saying is, Christopher, does it make it easier if somebody comes at you to have a dialogue than to have you be their teacher? Yes. I so here's the thing. I think it's, um, I think it's sometimes, maybe irony is not the word, but there's this expectation that um like culturally there's this pressure on people now to do their own education and at the same time we haven't made space in our culture for white folks who may not have people that they feel comfortable coming to there's not alternative spaces for that right so when we look mm -hmm. at like when we look at education when we look at the workplace when we look at the media like what folks have been clamoring for is more black voices, more indigenous voices, more Latinx voices. But the problem is, since those voices don't exist, it's hard to find places to go to where we can even see other people having those dialogues. So it's almost like we're having these conversations in isolation and then we're forced, right? People who like uh, carry privilege around a certain identity. So I speak for myself as a man, for example, right? Then I'm forced to go to a woman and say, hey, this is something that I've kind of been marinating on as opposed to creating space, social space, mm -hmm. men and women together to have conversations. And then people can either observe those conversations or people can engage in those conversations directly. Yeah, I've yeah. been, I think I've personally been very lucky to have 
someone like you in my life, someone who's very, not just the lived experience, but also the very well-educated in this area. You work in advocacy with minorities, and you are not afraid ever to tell me exactly where I belong. (laughs) And that is something I, being me, definitely need someone who's willing to really butt heads with me when I go off track. And so I appreciate that, and um, I think people should look for that in their friends of all stripes. I, yeah, one of the things, I, I totally hear you, Christopher, that the spaces aren't there. Um, because when I first started trying to to kind of, like, grow in this way, um, one of the main things that I wanted to do was to, like, cultivate relationships with people of color so that I could understand their experience better. But then you feel like you just have to be so careful going after it because I don't want the people that I'm cultivating those relationships with to feel like I'm going after them to some end i just want to like be in relationship with them but in the back of my mind i also know that this is something that i'm i'm headed towards so i'm having a really hard i'm actually having a really hard time navigating that like i don't want even if it is a few different people i don't want a few different token people to teach me um this stuff or help me to understand the stuff i want real relationship and having that kind of dual um intent is kind of messing with my head yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think you use the, the right word there when you use the word token. I think what happens is when we when these types of moments come up and then we go to like black folks, for example, for some sort of like guidance or understanding, then it's almost inadvertently tokenizing them because it's like, hey, we go to you because you're expected to know information about this because it's your lived experience, right? Um, so, but the problem is in order to then do that, you have to build a genuine relationship. But in order to build a genuine a genuine relationship, sometimes you feel like those are the moments that are where the door opens, right? So it's like this, uh, I don't know what would, it's almost a catch-22 to a certain yeah. extent. Actually, sorry, oh, go ahead. do you mind sorry, if I go all, back? Yes. Last no, no, word, no. but no, go ahead. No, no, <laughs> for sure. For the, no, 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 for the first tip, I think that it's important to realize that no bl- black folks aren't a monolith, and so, Speaking to one black person does not then speak to the totality of every black person's experience. And what I would also say is there are some black folks who have had very different understandings, right? Even if they've had a lived experience of like living under like a system of oppression, the way that they they wear they wear these glasses, right? Like it's it's every we all filter things through our own lenses, and so their lenses may have seen something in a very different way. When I used to uh, teach uh, kids like nonviolence education stuff in schools, I would always use the example of how two people can see an accident and have a very different understanding and impact of what happened upon attended. So, for example, one kid may see the accident and may be like, "That's the worst thing I've ever seen before in my life. That was horrible." And another kid may say, oh, well, I've seen worse, right? Both of those kids actually saw the same accident. And so then it it doesn't take away from the severity of the accident, but through the lenses that they're looking through, they interpret it in very different ways. So so not to call out any particular Black person, but all Black people don't have the same understanding of living under a system of oppression as, um, as everyone else, if that makes sense. Tip number two, don't take too much metaphorical space in the conversation. Yes, this is hard for verbal processors, which Joel and I both are. <laughs> we know. She we says know processing you. verbally. 
We know you have important things to say, but white people's ideas and story are prioritized everywhere else. Take this opportunity to sit quietly and elevate the voices of people of color. So, Christopher, what do you think of that before I talk over you? Um, yes, I agree with this one. I, I agree with them all, but I think this one is um, especially important because people who are verbal processes, processors or even people who are not tend to take up space. We tend to center a, 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 a what we consider a universal experience or a global experience around ourselves, right? So, um, you know, if something happens to folks of color, then what tends to happen sometimes, not all the time, is that when white folks are processing it, especially with other white folks, they'll then center themselves in that conversation. So it'll become about how they feel. It'll become about what they experienced. It'll become about, you know, how they perceive it relative to their own um, understanding, right? As opposed to the actual experience of the person of color or specifically here, black folks. It feels like, or it sounds like when like a celebrity dies or there's a tragedy in a city and then all of a sudden you see people like posting online about like, oh, I remember when I was in Paris yeah. and like I saw Notre Dame and it's so sad that it burnt down. And you're like, you do, you, you're making it about yourself. And I, I kind of have. Oh, I'm sure I do this. I never yeah, thought about what I you just said. I have empathy for that because I think that's just a human thing to to mm. interpret and like process everything through yourself and your experience and how your world works. Um, and I, I, that is that is something that I particularly need to work on. And I think it's a good tip to try and process things through someone else's point of view. Yeah, I w that's definitely not something I would have thought of in like when when I first read it and I was kind of processing what it said. I thought, oh, yeah. So when I need to process verbally, Joel and I will go off into a corner and two white people will do it and then we won't take up <laughs> anybody else's space. But I didn't think about how it could devolve into us making it about ourselves and kind of distorting the reality of of the experience of the person that matters I by by doing that. I think about this in every conversation I have. <laughs> Literally every time I'm talking to anyone. So if I'm talking to you, I am thinking during that conversation, like, don't take up too much room. Stop. Ask them how their day's doing. Maybe they had a day today. Maybe they have feelings. You should ask them. And, like, that is just something that I'm continually trying to process. That's why we give each other dirty looks in small groups so that we won't monopolize the conversation. Christopher, last word on that one. This actually relates a lot. I didn't realize that to number five. So we can continue the conversation there. If it's it. Perfect. Tip number three, don't compare your experience of oppression or suffering with a people of, with a POCs, people of color with an apostrophe sounds weird. POCs experience with oppression or suffering. Although you might see similarities between your circumstances, resist the urge to interpret a black, indigenous, or person of color's experience through your limited lens. Your suffering is real, and it might help you feel more connected or, uh, to or empathetic toward your friend of color, but your experiences are not the same. Continue to listen and seek to understand. I've literally had no challenges in my entire life. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing it's when I was reading it. It's like... It's something that affects me, and I think about that, like, I don't know how to persevere because, like, nothing's been hard for me ever. Uh, and, like, I don't have a problem with this one because I just have no experiences. You, you're aware that you haven't. I, I One of the things I was um, reading, uh, so you want to talk about race the other day, and early in the book she does a 
um, comparison of racism to being in an abusive relationship. And it was funny because it's sort of the reverse of this. Her use of that oppressive situation helped me to better understand the situation. Um, but I, this is like pathetic from both of us, but I think both of us are in the same situation that we don't, we've never been poor. We've never been without, we've never been, I mean, I've been lucky to be more free than most women of, of instances of sexism. Like, but do people do this to you, Christopher? Yes, but it actually is. So there's a, there's, this could actually be number 17. Um, but I think that it relates. So what I've experienced is not necessarily where white folks, what I've experienced at times, and I think we're all guilty of this, is sometimes we'll take our we'll take our experiences around our identities that we're targeted around, and we'll then use those examples to make an assumption that we understand what someone else who has another targeted identity is experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, for example. I might say, um, oh, this happened to me once in a Facebook argument. Um, we were, I, I don't remember what we were discussing, but um, essentially the person said, well, women have it worse than black folks. And she didn't say black folks. She used another term, but that's, I'm using my own language. I'm paraphrasing what she said. We appreciate that. What she said may or may not necessarily be wrong, but what happens then is you're minimizing the experience of the person who is experiencing being targeted around that particular identity in that moment because you think you understand because you've been targeted around another identity. And so we sometimes call that the oppression Olympics, where it's like <laughs> this particular group um, is definitely way more you know, um, oppressed than this particular group. And that actually doesn't help anyone because we all at some point in our lives carry some what's what's with few exceptions, right? Like most of us carry some targeted identity. So it's almost like it's almost a red herring to a certain extent when we mm-hmm. produce our own experiences of, experiences of oppression into a conversation about someone else's oppression. And it shouldn't be a competition. I mean, speaking as the cisgendered white male government lawyer on this podcast, um, like I feel like we should be kind of devoting time and energy and trying to lift everyone up as opposed to being like, well, I should take priority because I have it worse. Well, this is an interesting idea too, Christopher. Do you think that there's any damaging effect of kind of lumping together all disadvantaged classes of people um, in that like, like we, because there are times when I talk in one breath where I'm like people of color, LGBT, women, or you know, like going down the list there and being like they're all oppressed and they share this experience. And now I'm like wondering if maybe that's even a little bit problematic. It is. I honestly think that using the using the term, like I think we use it because it's the best way we've learned to like grapple with being inclusive. But when we say people of color. I think what we're doing is we're lumping people's experience together and people have different experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So you had someone who is, for example, an immigrant from the Middle East come to the U.S. and someone who is an immigrant, for example, from Central America, when they get here, if you didn't know anything about them, they would probably have very different experiences. And so when we lump folks together and say people of color, while, again, I use the term all the time, I appreciate the term because I there should be 
some solidarity in our targeted, you know, in being targeted by um, systemic oppression. And at the same time, it's not helpful because what it does is it dilutes some people's experiences. So when you look at like particularly indigenous and black folks, they have very different experiences than, uh, for example, Latinx, Latinx folks. Mm -hmm. And it's not someone who's Latinx like doesn't experience oppression. They do every day, all the time, constantly. But then you get into, well, what country are they or what country are their, you know, uh, are their parents or their family from? Um, what is their complexion? White, right? So, I mean, that was a Freudian slip. Folks who are white passing, for example, have a very different experience than folks who like to, you know, our, our discriminating eye, we can identify as being folks of color. It's, I, I just, like, I just now thought about it for the first time. Like, I'm, I'm one step worse than that because legally we think about them as suspect classes, which doesn't mean classes of people you suspect. It means classes of people who we need to be more suspicious of actions towards. In the law, that's what suspect classes are. And so when we talk about it, like really it, poorly named, yeah, know, when we talk about it at work, we talk about suspect classes. And that's just that's not just people of color or LGBTQ, it's age, race, religion, like all everything gets lumped into this one term that's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, suspect classes. And that's yeah, I think that, that that's funny. That's on the front end that I think that that must be where that came from. When you think of like equal protection and that kind of thing, yeah. we lump them all together in the law. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And we even, you know, we, we lump white people together, which is terrible because I think there could be a lot more solidarity if white. Are you, wait, I'm sorry. Are you suggesting white solidarity? No, I mean, okay. solidarity between Just clarifying. various ethnic groups who we would call quote white. And people of Where color, oh, okay. Because, yeah. like, when you talk about like the Irish or the Greeks coming over and experiencing real discrimination in America, and then then getting kind of shuffled in, and their identities and their cultures getting erased, and now they're white. And I have no idea where you're going with this. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, we I, I hear, out, I hear what I you're saying. Feel like we as a culture like to edit things down. Sorry, Christopher. No, no, I, I think that what you're speaking to is what we consider kind of the great American experiment, which we know is only um, enjoyed by what we've white folks. Right. So um, when we talk about pride, for example, um, and people say, well, I have Irish pride or Greek pride or that's very different than saying I have white pride. <laughs> yes. There's a specific reason for that is because our nations of origin is something that we can identify with through our history and something that we can actually be a proud be proud of. And it's fine. Right. People who, you know, celebrate, you know, in New York City, for example, like at the um, I don't remember the name of it. I think it's like the Italian parade or, you know, whatever the actual term that folks use for it is like that in and of itself is not a problem. It's it, it's when it spirals into like not being about nationality, but being about racial categorization, that it then becomes problematic. And so I think that that's what, like, the fact that white folks enjoy the privilege of being white in America has actually diminished their ability to be able to feel pride in their actual nation of origin through their history. I was wondering if, like, one of the things we've been talking about as a church is, like, obviously how to become more welcoming we we are in a ridiculously diverse neighborhood and we have like some diversity in the church but it does not reflect the actual neighborhood we live in and we're trying to like decipher why and one of the things that i 
hypothesized was that like Lutheranism and its kind of identification with like Scandinavian and like, I don't know, legitimately white cultures would be like almost kind of a form of white supremacy or like a like a pride in our whiteness because we're identifying with these white cultures. And I was wondering if you do you feel that when you walk into a Lutheran church or even like a any of these other kind of like traditionally white denomination church? Because I know you you've been to a lot of different types of churches. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a good question. Like I, I so I think that any discomfort I feel is not around people identifying with a certain like national identity. Right. So the the Scandinavian feel of a Lutheran church, for example, is something that any discomfort with that is not toward Denmark or Sweden or Finland, you know, et cetera, itself. Finland's not a Scandinavian country, Christopher. Well, sorry. Uh, I assumed it was too. I definitely would have assumed it was. (laughs) Go on. So, you know, folks who are Scandinavian know that, for example, right? So I think that there are certain, like, um, there are certain things that we can enjoy about having those types of, like, um, those types of conversations and that pride in where our family came from. It's that then when we start to, um, I call it like, it's like a culture of a culture of entitlement. So people talk about right, white privilege all the time, right? We can have a discussion about that any, you know, any time. Me personally, and again, I don't speak for all black folks, but white privilege in and of its, the white privilege is a bad thing. The fact that people enjoy white privilege, or not enjoy, that's the wrong word. The, pa- the fact that people live with white privilege, that in and of itself is not bad because the person has no control over that. It's the um, what I would call white entitlement that then becomes an is- the issue. So by people enjoying being part of a Scandinavian culture, for example, that's perfectly fine. It's then when people are in- feel like they're entitled to certain things because they are, or they're entitled to you know um, treat people a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, that that's when our pride then becomes an issue. This feels like it's on topic, but it, it may be a bit off, but I don't think it can be said enough because when I first learned this, it literally, it just blew my mind and changed the way I look at the world. And it was embarrassingly recently. But when we start, <laughs> when we talk about pride, I remember in the nineties, a lot of like, well, how come you can have a black pride or gay pride parade and you can't have a white pride parade. And it's not, the pride is not about being proud of your heritage and saying, I'm proud. I am gay. It's about, being public and proudly public and saying, I'm going to walk down the street and I'm going to walk down the street and be gay. And you're going to know I'm gay and I'm going to be in public and it's going to be okay. It, I'm going to walk around proud of who I am and it's going to be a public act. And that's something that as a white person, I've never had to do. Like I've never felt like it wasn't okay that I was walking around who I am, that I w- I've never been in a city or a place or amongst people Uh, where I didn't think it was okay that I was who I was. And so the reason you, it's not that you can't have, because you certainly could, but you don't need a white pride parade is because it's not about being like, oh, I'm so proud I'm gay, or I'm so proud I'm black, or I'm so proud I'm Irish. It's about saying, I'm going to walk around in public and publicly be the thing I am. And everyone's going to be okay with it. And it's going to be fine. And that's the world we need to live in. And I just can't say that enough. Um, yeah, no, that's good. Christopher, on the issue, on the tip regarding um, comparison of oppression, last word on that? 
Yes. Um, I think that we just need to be mindful that anything we've experienced, um, we have to filter it through. When I experienced that thing, did I experience it because I was targeted around an identity that I have no control over? To me, that's the question. When folks start talking about their lived experience around something that, you know, wasn't, it may, they may, they maybe have been discriminated against, but it wasn't necessarily be for something that was beyond their control in that way. Those are two very different conversations. Number four, don't white flame. And let me tell you what that means. Don't explain <laughs> racism to that. a person of color. Do not explain how the microaggression they just experienced was actually someone being nice. Do not explain how a particular injustice is more about class than race. It's an easy trap to fall into, but you can avoid it by maintaining a posture of active listening. I'm going to just say this was the Joel party line until like a year and a half ago, maybe the class versus race issue. It's and not about class versus race. It's about recognizing that classism is an issue that I have and that we as a culture have that we also need to deal with on top of our issues of race. But you, every single time, I, until more recently, every single time a racial issue came up, you reframed in this way constantly. And I didn't like vehemently disagree with you ever. I mean, this is just one that, yeah. that I would say this is a place we have been growing. Personally, I think I, I feel a... Do you like how we just did the white explain one and then didn't let Christopher talk? I feel like I personally have a larger issue uh, with classism that I need to deal with. And obviously I have... Because only classism could affect you. I have racial bias, except... No, not that I need to deal with, that I have against other people. Christopher, tell me how right I am. <laughs> what do you think of my explaining, Christopher? I actually agree with Kathleen um, in mm -hmm. that... I think until recently, I've also had that experience with you, Joel. Okay. And I think that you've grown significantly. I think it's actually been a little bit more than a year and a half, but I've seen you um, have a, a greater understanding and empathy toward not just people who are poor, but then also other, like, I think that... All right, let me step back. So I... I think the reason that we have, as a culture, the reason that we sometimes conflate race issues with class issues is because they're not ne necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at this country about who is experiencing poverty at like exponentially higher rates, it is indigenous folks, it is black folks, it is like Latinx folks. Oh. And so why? Race and class are two different issues. They're not necessarily divorced from one another. And so that can then create, I think, a confusion, or not even a confusion, a conflation in people's mind where I've seen Joel recently not conflate them as much as maybe he used to like 10 years ago. I, I, I would defend myself and say that it's not necessarily conflation as I do think that classism is an issue. Uh, but then, of course, every time I read something about redlining, even if it's only repeating information I already knew, but every time you learn something new, like that's just a rabbit hole that goes forever deep. And redlining is just... I don't know what redlining is. Oh, man. It's basically, they used to... Uh, the government drew a red line around certain neighborhoods and said, banks, it is unlawful for you to give loans to black people for houses in these neighborhoods. 
Yeah. Um, what you're saying is that racial prejudice is also like true and real. Right, but it's not just true. It's like physically baked into the like wealth and privilege that we have built up as individuals that for years it wasn't even like oh you buy a nice house and you build up wealth in that house it was you don't have a chance not because you're unable to buy or not because you're not wealthy enough to buy but literally just oh no you are on the wrong side of the red line and so then minorities get stuck and, and here i am white splaining red spot redlining minorities well, you're explaining get, it to me so that's minorities okay. get stuck in neighborhoods that are redlined and so banks go oh it's a redlined neighborhood we're not going to invest in businesses there whether or not that business would be successful, the bank just doesn't. And so those neighborhoods degrade while other neighborhoods get more resources. And it's just, I mean, it, it's just conflating. And I hear it's what terrible. you're saying about it being one of the things, and this kind of goes back to um, Joel's kind of thesis in his young adulthood about classism and my total unwillingness to stand up to it or tell him he's wrong because I probably 99% of the time thought he was right, um, is that like my impulse is to give the white person involved the benefit of the doubt and to sanitize it so that I don't have to think about the implications of what it would have been if it was based on race, which mm. often it, well, it always is to some degree. Um, but that's the thing is like, I have always been willing to give the white officer or the white mm. person involved the benefit of the doubt without extending that same uh, what's the word without extending that courtesy. courtesy. Thank you to, um, the, the black person or the person of color involved, which is just, that's just racism. Yeah. And I do, <laughs> I do like to think I have grown, but that is not this topic. We should get back on topic. White splaining. Christopher, how often does that happen to you? And not just by my sister who I know likes to explain things. Well, so, so I think that, you know, it's interesting being in a, um, being in a biracial marriage because, um, I find that there are situations that Tara and I will have a conversation. And then once we step back and reflect on it, we will see that I've done my amount of mansplaining and she's done her amount of whitesplaining <laughs> to where sometimes, or not sometimes, one time we actually were having a conversation. I remember exactly where we were. We were walking to get tacos and we were arguing about something. And I can't remember which one of us said it first, but one of us said, don't, don't, you know, don't mansplain to me. Well, it would have been her in that situation. She, I don't, but I don't remember which one uh -huh. of us brought it up first. She said, don't mansplain to me. And before she said that, I was thinking she's white explaining to me and so then i white explain to me and it was just a moment where we both just kind of stood there and we were like oh we're both idiots because we both did that thing <laughs> yeah this is one i really have a problem with both white explaining and mansplaining because i'm a just a splainer i like i always feel like my idea is the best idea like i could be talking to an astronaut like a little it is astronaut. an area that we could both grow in regardless of which what wh who we're talking to we both do it um and it's on my list of things yeah. to try to make better about myself <laughs> at the risk of white explaining white explaining i do think it is just the human impulse to always think you know what you're talking about it's the um it is for us it's not for everyone no it's the like dunning Curry effect where you just think you know everything about a topic uh, the problem being of course that as the dominant culture, 
we have such a status and such a place that there is a difference between white splaining and mansplaining and woman-splaining. Since this is a Christian podcast, though, I think that this is one of the things that, and I, I think this goes to my desire to grow in this area, is that this is a place where we can grow in humility. And now I feel like I want to look up that Philippians verse that it's like, don't count yourself more important than others, but others, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> we can, you know, put that in some sort of meme associated with this instead of me actually looking it up. But this is like when people are like, well, I'm not white splaining. It's like, well, just think this first. You know what? Christopher, talk. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> you might know the verse. What is that Philippians verse? No, I actually was, I actually said, oh, I think I know that verse. But then I was like, no, because I don't want to say it and it's wrong. So I don't want to mansplain. <laughs> I want to say it's two, four. If it's, if it is, I get the gold star of the day. Yeah. Brownie points. Uh, oh, it's, uh, it's two, three Philippians two, three do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you in the interests of the others. To me, this is like the call to white people. It's like, if you're not sure if you owe deference to people of color about issues of people of color, bing, there. Now you have a biblical, like, command to go do it. Thus saith the Lord. Uh, Christopher, do you have any last words on white explaining? Nope. Okay. <laughs> kind of sounds like we're going to kill him when we say that. Yes. <laughs> Number five, don't make the conversation about you. The needs, feelings, questions, and priorities of white people are centered most everywhere. If you feel silenced or undervalued, use that experience to inform how you treat people of color in other spaces instead of developing a victim complex. The falling of white tears does not build bridges, and it shifts the focus from the true problem, racism and inequality, to how you feel about having to learn about it. And I do hate having to learn anything. Um, have you ever been in a situation, Christopher, where you were basically, I mean, I know the way you call people out. You call people out with grace and kindness, but where the situation got flipped on you? Where you became the bad guy? Yes. That happens all the time. Oh, <laughs> Probably with us now that I'm thinking through this. No, 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 not at all. No, no, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely. No, no, no. He's I think you, guy with us. you you brought up the word grace earlier. I think that there's there are certain times where people will offer a certain amount of grace, and that exists in someone having a humble heart. And so I think it's when people don't, or they seem to me to lack that humility, right? Like only God knows their heart. But yeah, in those moments is when it often will get flipped on someone, which isn't like. That's that's the history, I think, of part of the black experience in this country. Right. Like some people I don't like using the term um, because I think that sometimes certain like marginalized people hijack it. But I think it's appropriate where black folks feel gaslit to a certain extent mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, well, that thing that you think happened, it either didn't happen or you're actually doing it. I'm not the one doing it being coming from the perspective of, of the white person. And to a certain extent, that's really like. It's it not only is it frustrating, it's so defeating, right? I, and I think yeah. that's what you're getting to. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard to not get defensive because I'm really good at justifying my own actions to myself. 
And so when somebody says, hey, man, the thing you just did was, they don't even say, like, that was racist. They're like, hey, that was insensitive. Or, you know, you really need to think about how that comes across to people of color or other marginalized groups. Like, I'm like, oh, no, no, I didn't. I wasn't doing it like that. Like, I obviously am okay with that. But I was just, you know, I was going down this road. And, you know, here's what I was thinking. Like, here's my legitimate reason for doing that thing. We're, we're a perfect um, pair in illustrating this because you are really defensive and I am really fragile. Um, ever since I was like a little, little kid, if I felt like I was being called out for anything in any way, like you didn't do your homework, you didn't play the game correctly, you know, I would cry immediately. And I cannot think of anything, any worse way of being called out than being called out for something that I said that was racist or insensitive to somebody who's otherwise already, you know, dealing with a lot of oppression and a lot of different things like that. Like it's the worst possible thing. So when I came, became aware of the power and um, the way it can flip a whole situation on its head and make me the victim by just being fragile, by just crying. um, I, I, at first I was really discouraged just because I didn't, know what to do i'm physically going to cry when it happens because i have never been able to control it and i seriously wish i could and so i've been kind of thinking about how to strategize like at some point if i keep engaging in this dialogue if i keep in, you know teaching kids of color and having their parents expectations like there's going to be a, a point where somebody says you shouldn't have said that you shouldn't have done that this was problematic and you didn't deal with it correctly. And I am, I have like a little like plan in place to deal with what's going to happen when I physically cry so that I can arrange the situation correctly. But this was, this is the most challenging thing for me, just because for me, is it a physical response? I need to build up my stamina. I need to get tougher when it comes to racial issues. Um, But it will take time. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, scared of the meantime i guess yeah i i just always want to explain myself like i always think i'm being reasonable and so i want to explain myself and i get accused like of being right now defensive yeah i get accused of being defensive but it's like no i'm not do you realize that wanting to explain yourself in every situation is the definition of being defensive no it's not <laughs> <laughs> thank you just, it's so fun to have a third person in the yeah, conversation no i i think defensive requires a certain amount of feeling wrong and i've never felt wrong uh but i just like it's one of those things where like oh if i if you just understood where i was coming from yeah like, we, we all know why you do it yeah and uh, wow i guess this is beaming to joel day I, i'm a fragile I little to flower glow and you're attacking me you fragile flower um, i don't know and so it's hard not to i think it's hard for everyone to not try and explain yourself when you are unintentionally showing your kind of unconscious biases. Christopher, what? Which one of these is your problem? No, no, no. (laughs) What would you, what would you say? um, If you could pause a conversation, like, and take a white person who had just been called out aside and say something to them before they had a response, what would it be? That's a really good question. Um, I think it depended on the white person, right? Because I think what happens... That makes sense, yeah. We tend to respond differently to people that 
we that we know well, that we care about, or that we see as being either thin thin skinned or thick skinned, right? So depending on that person and how I think they would receive what I said is probably how I would approach them. Um, but I think generally speaking, like explaining to people that, and this is here's the problem. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. What tends to happen and this is almost one of those secrets that Black folk have amongst ourselves that sometimes we don't even talk about amongst ourselves, which is the fact that Black folks have learned historically to shield white people from the pain of, their, of the privilege that they enjoy. And so to a certain extent, sometimes you'll see Black folks almost run to the defense of the white people, of the, of the white folks that they care about, because they don't want them to feel like, oh, you're, you know bigoted or you're racist or you're, you know, insensitive, you know, so on and so forth. So that in and of itself is problematic because then what it's saying is that black folks should be the, and this is not what you're saying, Kathleen, but I think in these situations, sometimes the expectation is that then black folks should come across or should come over as the rescuer or the nurturer in situations where white folks are being fragile, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I my, I even sort of started to go down that route when I was formulating that question like, hey, what would you say to other black people about how to? I'm like, nope, not their job. Um <laughs> uh but that like I sometimes wish that you could pause it in time and be like, let's think about what you're about to do right now. Um because I think if you can have a moment to let the emotions process of it and that a lot of good-hearted intelligent people would respond differently than they will in that exact moment. So I guess like from some, from a white person that is preparing themselves for this moment in my life, like my plan is to take a beat and, and think about the effect of what I'm about to say. Um, because I mean, and that may not be a perfect plan and it might still like, implode in my face. Um, but I just, I'm, this is just something I think that white people can prepare for is like, you are going to get called out. So how are you going to be when it happens? Any last words? Yeah, I, I would like to call folks to folks's attention. Um, a a um, colleague, friend and co-conspirator of mine who passed away um, uh, two months ago, um, who once, um, I think it was in 2018, posted a really amazing post on Facebook about a time she's, um, she's, uh, Asian American, uh, Korean American, and she, um, she experiences life with the disability or she experienced life with a disability. And so she, uh, was talking about in this Facebook post, how one time she said something that was ignorant and she got called out by someone and she went through this thread and explained her process in a way that was so beautiful. Um, one, I actually just looked it up um, and I'll just read one sentence that she wrote. Now this shouldn't be the expectation of every white person, but what she said in this particular case with this black person who, um, who, you know, had a conversation with her, she said, my friend did not weaponize my cluelessness, nor did they shame me. Instead, they opted to invest in my personal development. That should not necessarily be people's expectation when they're called out, 
But when they have that type of relationship with someone, the type of relationship that you were talking about earlier, Kathleen, where you've invested in someone not because they're a person of color or because they're a trans person or because, you know, they're a poor person, but because of who they are. And then one of the benefits you reap are that or is that they're there is that they're one of those things or multiple of those things. So I think that like Stacy's what we what we all want is to have someone like Stacy had in her life. And so by surrounding ourselves with those folks, we can then grow in a way where we're being stretched, but at the same time, we're not being torn, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. And on that, I think yeah, we cannot. <laughs> Christopher, would you do us the honor and pray us out? Yes, definitely. Precious God, we just thank you for, Lord God, this time where we're just allowed to just sit back and reflect. We know that there's a lot going on around us, Lord God, that there are people who are uh, becoming sick and dying from COVID, Lord God, and that are uh, becoming, um, I mean, honestly becoming sick and dying from racism. And Lord God, we just uh, honor you for giving us the space to have these conversations and this dialogue, Lord, so that not so that we can elevate ourselves above other people, Lord God, and be better than them, because we know that you're no respecter of person, Lord God, but so that we can uh, learn from each other, Lord God, and just pour out our hearts to one another in a way, Lord Jesus, where this example of Stacy, Lord God, where she feels like her, um, like there are folks investing in her personal growth and development, Lord God. And so we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and we just love you and we honor you in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please take a second to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It helps others to find us and to be hashtag blessed by the discussions that we have here. If you want to contact us, you can reach us on Instagram at Christ in the Chaos, or you can email us at Christ in the Chaos pod at email.com. Until next week, we hope you have a peaceful week. But even if you don't, remember that you can find us and Jesus waiting for you in the chaos. <laughs>